We're going to be looking this morning at the Gospel of Mark again, Gospel of Mark chapter 11. Uh, We're going to start at the end, 27. We're going to go through chapter 12, verse 12. And from this point of Jesus, from from this moment, or, or I would say from the moment Jesus entered into Jerusalem and that triumphal entry, uh, from this point on, there is a strong move to the cross, right? That everything is pushing that direction. And there is a building anger and a building animosity towards Jesus by the religious leaders. Last week, we looked at the cursing of the fig tree. It was a, it was a symbol of judgment uh, by Jesus against those unfaithful religious leaders, And this week, we're going to also look at another parable where he brings judgment against those same religious leaders. And so that's the that's going to be a theme we're going to see for the next uh, few weeks until we get all the way to the cross. So with that, why don't we go ahead and read the Gospel of Mark? We're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 27 to chapter 12, verse 12. Hear God's word. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to give from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And they, he sent another and him they killed and so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Uh, It's a hard word. It's a word of judgment. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, by this same word, 
open our hearts and expose them to you to it. And Lord, by your mercy and grace, redeem us. Show us your love. Care for us. Expose our hearts and then heal them. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are honest questions and there are dishonest questions, right? There are honest questions and then there are dishonest questions. Questions that are asked to get at understanding. They are honest. Tell me more. I want to understand. What did you mean by X? I don't quite get it. There are honest questions that seek understanding. And then there are questions that are asked to do all sorts of things, right? To show off, to trap, to confuse, to make a point. Uh, This is uh, maybe a little bit of exposure to my own shame, but occasionally in seminary, I'd observe this among my seminary friends. Um, Now, it wasn't nefarious, right? But they would often, and I'm getting to my own sin here in a minute, but I'll expose us as seminarians as a whole. Um, But often, you know, they they would ask questions to seem like they were smart, right? Have you been in a class like that? Maybe you have in in college or grad school or whatever. People ask questions to seem smart, or in the case of seminarians, to seem spiritual, right? In those moments, I would often find the need myself to counter it with my own dishonest or disingenuous question, right? I kind of wanted to put them in their place, but why? pride, to have the professor like me, disingenuous, dishonest questions. You know, that's a pretty innocuous situation. But here in our text, the, 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 the authorities come to Jesus and they ask him a question. And on the face of it, it could seem as a very honest question. Well, you know, tell us by what authority... Are you teaching and healing and casting out uh, the the money changers and so tell us we, we're really interested because if you know if you are of the right authority, we want to bow down to you. But that was not an honest question, right? Sometimes we don't even know we're not asking an honest question, but we have to remind ourselves of Jeremiah's words, right? Uh, The heart is deceitful above all things. We don't even know our own hearts well enough to realize we're not asking honest questions. But this this morning in our text, what I want us to think about, what I want us to consider is when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to his word, are we being honest? Or are we keeping Jesus at a distance? Are we... Maybe we don't reject him outright, but we're asking those honest questions to keep him at a distance, to keep his word away from us. So that why? Why? That we might not have to obey. I can ask a question of Jesus and say, Jesus, do you really mean for me to do this thing that says in your word? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of interpretations of this text. Is that an honest question? Some of you, though, that you might be asking even more deeper question, Lord, You might not say, Lord, you'll just say, who is this Jesus? Is he really who he says he is? By what authority do you have the right to tell me how to live my life? 
right? But I want to get at the, the, the root or the heart of that question. What is, what is coming from that question? And at the end, what I want us to consider is this. I want us to consider this call because I think this is at the heart of it. It's at heart of those questions towards Jesus is a desire to reject him and to make ourselves the arbiter of all things true and right, to make ourselves the authorities, to make ourselves the ones who decide what is right and wrong. In the common language, you might say, what is your truth, right? Like we want to define truth for ourselves. That's our, that's our sin nature at work in us. And I want us to think about it and to consider what it is that we're doing that sort of pushes Christ away and rejects him. I want to encourage you, don't reject him, but receive him. Receive him who was rejected for you. That's where I want us to to go today. Don't reject him. Don't reject the Christ, but receive him who was rejected for you. And we'll look at this in sort of two parts. The first part is the issue of rejecting the Lord, or maybe put more clearly, rejecting the authority of Christ. And the second thing I want to look at and think about is to consider is the love, the power, and the authority of the rejected Christ. The love, the power, and the authority of the rejected Christ. So those are just the two broad categories we're going to look at today as we examine this text. And as we think about rejecting the authority of Christ, the first thing I want to discuss is the insincerity of our hearts. The insincerity. Like We have to be honest with ourselves. This is a call to introspection. So let me set the stage in our context here. Jesus, remember, has cleansed the temple. He's flipped up the the money changers. He has uh, been teaching on the temple grounds. But before any of that, he was out among the people in Galilee and Judea and elsewhere. And he was proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. And he was calling people to repentance and faith. And he was healing and he was doing miraculous signs. And throughout that time, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, were threatened. They felt threatened by him. And so at this moment, as he's entering into Jerusalem at this high holy day, this holy week, right before Passover, he's come to the temple, he's cleansed the temple, and he's teaching on the temple grounds. And this is too much. It's too much to bear for these religious leaders. And so they come to him. The chief priests... The chief priest, the most significant person and persons within the context of the life of Israel came along with the scribes and the elders. And they asked a question. It's a pretty legitimate question when you think about it at first blush. By what authority are you doing these things? Remember, these men, these chief priests, these scribes, and the elders have the responsibility to protect the people of God and maintain the right worship of God and to uphold the word of God. And so not dissimilar to my own role as an elder or the other elders here, this is part of our role to protect, to guard, to keep. And so I don't think it was out of line in one sense for them to ask the question. They probably could show their credentials. The chief priests say, I'm from the line of Aaron. 
right? This is, by right of lineage, my role. I'm the chief priest. I have authority. Or maybe some of them, the scribes, they were like Paul, and they said something to the effect of, and here's our credentials. We studied, studied under Gamaliel or something to that effect, right? Um, here's our, alma, here's our uh, diploma. Here's our, our right to speak. But by what authority do you come, Jesus? Who are you? You see, it could be a legitimate question. They were simply being zealous for the house of the Lord. But here's the thing. It wasn't a sincere, honest question. And Jesus exposes their insincerity. In typical rabbinic style, Jesus answered a question with a question. This is his way of exposing them. And I want us to notice two things in in Jesus' response. They said, by what authority do you come? And so Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. And and there's two things I want to note about his question here. The first thing, and and I think it's really important that we see this. Jesus is willing to answer them. I would go even one step farther. It is his desire to answer them, in one sense at least. He wants them to bow before him. He wants to share himself with them, to have them follow him, and for them to worship him. It reminds me of the rich young ruler. Remember, we looked at this a few weeks back when the rich young ruler came to Jesus. And he said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus flipped it on him. And he says, you know, have you kept the law? And he goes through the law and says, I've done all these things. And then Jesus says, um, you know, go sell all your goods, right? And the guy goes away rejected. But do you remember what Jesus said, what it said about Jesus towards him? It said he loved him. This man couldn't give it all away. He couldn't give it up. He couldn't get rid of that idol, but Jesus loved him. And I think there's something of that here when he says, answer me and I will tell you. I think it's important to note, and in a judgment text like this, that Jesus desires for us to repent and believe. It's his heart, it's his desire. It's why he weeps over Jerusalem. But the second thing I want us to notice in this question, in Jesus's question, is that he understands and sees the hearts of his opponents. Their question about authority was not an innocent question. And Jesus knew that. He understood that. You see, they had made up their mind to reject Jesus no matter what authority had sent him, right? No matter what he said in terms of his authority, even if God sent him, it didn't matter. They were ready to reject him. Jesus asked the question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Pretty simple question, but it wasn't simple, was it? It put these religious leaders in a bind, in a pickle. You see, John was an extremely popular figure. He had uh, died a martyr's death. He had been faithful in calling Israel to faith and repentance. He was a rock star in many ways. 
more so even in some ways than Jesus himself. He was, he was popular. And it would have been extremely hard for them to say that his authority was from man. From a very practical perspective, they, they knew that that would be a danger for their own life, right? This was a big crowd, large crowds gathering in Jerusalem for this holy day. And if they upset the crowd, that would be a problem. It was hard to say the authority was from man. But, and this is the interesting thing, it says, if they had, it says, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? You see, they understood the implications of what it meant to say that that John the Baptist was from heaven. It meant what John said was true. And what was John saying? He was saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was saying, here is the Messiah. And they would have to listen to that. And that was too much for them. It was too much for them. And so what do they do? Easy cop-out, right? I don't know. That's why we asked you. That's why we asked you. You see, the real problem for the religious leaders was not any sense of their wondering by what authority. I think they, I think they knew. I think they understood that Jesus and John were both Men from heaven, sent by God. But the real problem was that they knew that and they didn't want to obey. They didn't want to follow. They didn't want to relinquish power and control. They wanted it for themselves. Right? Jesus was disrupting their lives. He was turning the tables. He was ruining their system. And they were the ones who were in power. They didn't want to give that up. I want, to th- I want us to think about ourselves for just a moment. I think it's easy, very, very easy to be a skeptic, to stand on the sidelines and question everything. That's an easy thing, right? In our day and age, this it is seen as a naive thing to have a sense of certainty, right? If you have certainty about something, if you have conviction on a religious matter, then that's seen as at, at you know, at least naive and at best problematic, right? So dogma, dogma in our current world is a dirty word, right? If you have dogma, it means you're closed-minded. It means you uh, are probably going to do something evil. At least that's how it's portrayed in TV and films. Uh, Dogma is the root of all kinds of evil, right? Closed-mindedness. Rather, to question something, to hold things loosely, to to be open to change is to be seen as noble, as honest, as humble. Now, it looks different, right? So the religious leaders, when they questioned Jesus, they were very dogmatic. Like, that wasn't their issue. That's our issue. Um, But I think the root is the same. The religious leaders questioned Jesus Because to acknowledge that he was from heaven meant that they ought to bow before him. They ought to follow him. They ought to obey him. They ought to worship him. 
And I think sometimes a religious skepticism that we have, and that does, there's a difference between skepticism and honesty, right? It's an honest thing to say, I don't know. It's an honest thing to be like, that's a, that's a confusing thing. I read it in scripture. I don't understand. That's humility. That's honesty. But skepticism is of a different nature. It's, it's to hold something and say, unless you prove to me everything, I'm not going to believe you. It's to put yourself as God and say, Lord, by what authority do you have to write to speak into my life? And if you don't give me a good answer, I'm not following you. See, at the root, I think, it's the root of unbelief. We don't want to acknowledge Jesus to be from heaven heaven because it means that we can no longer be our own God. We can no longer define for ourselves our truth. Jesus, in our text this morning, exposes the hearts of the religious authorities. He says, your issue is not that you don't know. Your issue is that you do not, that you do know and that you reject the truth. You reject me as the Son of God. I think it's important for us to be honest with ourselves, to call a spade a spade. If you've been keeping the Lord at arm's length, always questioning, always remaining agnostic and skeptical, ask yourself, why am I doing that? What is it that I'm clinging to so tightly that prevents me from bowing before this one who offers such wondrous mercy and grace? Why am I so unwilling to give that up? That autonomy. And there's a real danger a real danger in rejecting Christ. Notice Jesus' response to their unwillingness to answer his question. What does he say? Well, neither will I answer you. The Lord Jesus is standing over them in judgment. Remember, they had come as the judges. They had come as the elders and the chief priests and the authorities, and they had come to Jesus to judge him, and he flips the whole thing on its head and says, I will not answer you because I, ironically, am the king. I am the Lord. I'm the one who's in charge. Jesus then takes time out and he uses an illustration to drive home this judgment of these religious leaders. He tells a parable. Now, most of the time in Scripture, in the New Testament, when Jesus tells a parable, the parables have a way of confounding, right? They have people who don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, can't grasp the meaning. Even the disciples oftentimes need explained to them the, the meaning of a, of a parable. So the way the parables work is that oftentimes they do act in a way of judgment, so those that don't understand can't grasp it. And those that do understand, you know, follow Christ and, and uh, either are told what it means or um, have ears to hear. But here, the parable is very clear. There's no question. In fact, at the end of 
the the section of the the parable it says that the they went away seeking to arrest him but they feared the people and then it says for they perceived that he had told the parable against them they perceived they understood they recognized the meaning of the parable so maybe put another way this parable is on the nose right it is in their face it's saying this is you so let's look at this parable a little bit and the danger of rejecting the lord jesus christ the parable was drawn from life it was a parable that would have been understandable in terms of its content in fact in this time period it was quite a common thing for there to be absentee landowners and for them to hire out tenants to run their farm or their or their or their uh, vineyard and so this this illustration was very a sort of a common picture in that day the tenant farmers would take over a farm and enjoy the produce but would re- the landowners would require a fee for that rent often uh, something in kind like okay you can you can plant the vineyard and you can you can make the wine but we want a portion of that for us as the landowners it's a form of rent you might say and you can actually go into the historical records non-biblical records and uh, uh, Jewish records and see disputes surrounding tenant farming uh, not probably dissimilar from what you see here and there were also laws regarding this kind of farming so it was a common picture It was easy for them to grasp. Here was a landowner who completely sets up the vineyard. Did you notice that? He does all the things at the outset. He sets it up. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, a watchtower, and he leased it to the tenants and then went away into another country. Here was this landowner who does it all. He sets it up, and he hands it over. Maybe he went to Crete, maybe he went to Asia Minor, maybe he went to Rome or wherever he went. He left it with the understanding that he, it was an investment. He would enjoy some of the fruit of that, of that investment. And he hasn't forgotten his investment. So what does he do? He sends his servants to go and ask for that portion, that rent fee or whatever you want to call it, and probably an agreed upon fee. And he sends the servants And rather than returning with wine, the first servant comes back, beat up and empty-handed. Doesn't deter the landowner, does it? No, he doesn't get too worked up over this. He sends another and another and another. And each time the the servant comes back or he doesn't. He either comes back beat up and empty-handed or he dies at their hands. You can imagine this landowner I, I don't know what he was thinking. He keeps sending people. He's probably a little worried. So he gets to the point where he says, okay, there's nothing. They keep sending these people back. So what I'll do is I'll send my son, the heir of my estate. They've got to respect him. He's the owner by virtue of his relationship to me. And they ought to respect him. But instead of respecting the son, this future owner, They took it as an opportunity. The landowner, maybe he was, they thought he was too old or he wasn't able to come back or they figured if they got rid of the son that everything would just 
kind of go away. There was stipulation in the law if an heir to the to the land was to die and there was no other heir to that piece of land, then the tenants would eventually gain ownership of the property. And so they looked on this as an opportunity. Here comes the son. This is it. We get rid of him and we're all set. The, the tenant, the landowner will never come back. He's in Rome. He's busy. He's old. Whatever it is, we have the land if we just get rid of this son. So they took him and they killed him. They missed something, right? What does Jesus say? They, they, I mean, he posed it as a question, presumably, to the, to the scribes and to the chief priests. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What else could the scribes and the chief priests say? Well, of course, he's going to come back and he's going to deal with these people. He's going he's to get rid of the tenants. Jesus indeed says he will destroy the tenants and take that vineyard and give it to another. So what's the Lord Jesus painting with this parable? First, I I want us to note that the imagery of Israel as a vineyard is something that we see in all of Scripture. We see it in the New Testament, right? Jesus himself calls himself the vine, right? Um, and, you know, he'll talk about us being grafted into the vine. As Gentiles, the Apostle Paul will bring that picture up as well. So this language of vineyard and fruitfulness is, is applied to the people of God throughout Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament as well. In particular, we see it in Isaiah chapter 5. I just want to read uh, the very first uh, couple verses or first verse or so of this of this passage in Isaiah. This is a song. It's called the Song of the Vineyard, Isaiah chapter 5. And at the beginning of the psalm, it says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it out of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And at the heart of the vineyard song, something these religious leaders, this chief priest and these scribes and Pharisees would have understood, this thing that they would have known, was that this was a psalm about judgment. It was about judging these wild grapes for their rebellion. It was about destroying the vineyard and starting over, starting again, starting anew. And so the religious leaders in our text would have heard the illusion They would have understood that Jesus was pointing at them. They would have understood that they were those tenants. They would have understood all of it. It was right on the nose. Another aspect of this parable are the servants, right? All the servants that come before the Son. The servants here represented all those prophets of old who came to the people of Israel and preached to them, repent and believe. And what happened to those prophets? Tradition has Isaiah being sawn in two under the evil king Manasseh. Jeremiah was beaten and abused by priests of Israel and sentenced to death at one point. He was also cast into a cistern and left to die. Amos, by tradition, died at the hands of a priest. Habakkuk 
was stoned in Jerusalem. The writer of Hebrews brings these up as as men of faith, right? What What does he say about these prophets? He says, some were tortured, refusing to accept a release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through faith, didn't receive what was promised. They, they went out into the wilderness and preached, knowing that they would only look forward to the thing that would be revealed. And yet they did it by faith, these servants of God. Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, you've rejected John, and now you are rejecting me. Know that the judgment of God is coming on account of your rejection of God's servant and God's son. Friends, it is no small thing to reject God. It's no small thing to reject his word and to reject his son. The Lord of glory will judge us accordingly. This is a hard text because it's a text of judgment. It's a hard word. It sits uncomfortably with us. On the one hand, I think we are prone to think, well, I'm not like those religious leaders. I'm not like them. They're full of arrogance and pride. They were all about power and control. That's not my heart. That's not who I am. That's where we need to ask ourselves, what prevents you from following Jesus, from bowing before him, from trusting his word? Truth be told, we are all by nature sinners who desire to be free from God's authority and control, to live how we want, to form a truth for ourselves. Friends, how do you receive the word? How do you respond to Christ? What reasons do you make for yourself to avoid calling him Lord? I think we fool ourselves into thinking that his judgment will not come to pass. The religious leaders thought, well, if we just destroy Jesus, if we just get him out of the way, they go off and they plot to kill him. Their big concern was the crowd. Their biggest concern was the crowd. And yet they came under the divine wrath of God for their rejection and rebellion against the Lord Jesus. Maybe we don't take such a direct approach in our rebellion. After all, we're not faced with flesh and blood Jesus, right? Yet I think all of us, all of us, on account of our sins, seek to avoid his rule and authority to press him out of our lives to busy ourselves with other things, to put off the thoughts of his word that convict us. In a word, the rebellion of the religious leaders is just a form of the rebellion that resides in our nature as sinners. 
And this brings me to my final thought and my conclusion that should not be missed. The love, the power, and authority of the rejected Christ. I want us to notice something in our text. He sent a servant and another and another and another and he kept sending them. No matter how often his own people, those tenants, would destroy those servants, he kept sending them, pleading with them, desiring that they would turn. And of course, this is a picture of the life of Israel, right? Over and over and over and over again, the Lord sent his prophets, calling the people to repentance and to faith, and they kept rejecting him, turning from him. But the Lord in all of this was patient. And is he not patient with you and with me? And then he sent his son, his only begotten son, the one who was with God and who was God. He sent him, knowing full well that he would be rejected. And this is the mystery of the gospel, because the Lord of glory knew that his son would be rejected. Christ himself understood that he would be going to the cross, and he willingly did it. He came from heaven to earth, to be rejected. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. This was the same psalm that was sung when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Blessed be the name of the Lord, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna on the highest. This was the song that was sung at the entrance of the king into Jerusalem. It was meant to be this great coronation hymn, right? The people were excited. Here's Jesus, the Messiah, coming into the city. And yet Jesus was going knowing that he was going to be rejected. That he was going to be forsaken. At the end of the Psalm 118, David has gone off in the psalm, David has gone off into battle and he has conquered and he has come into the city. The Lord has delivered him. And so they're singing as he enters into Jerusalem. And the song that they sing is this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the good news. Jesus willingly went to Jerusalem knowing that he would be rejected, not just by the chief priests, not just by the scribes, not just by the elders and the Pharisees, but he would be yelled at by the crowds crying, crucify him, crucify him. His own disciples would abandon him. His own disciples would deny him. And yet he was rejected for us, for those who rejected him. This is the mystery of the gospel, friends. 
This is the glorious hope that we have, that despite our own proclivity to reject the Lord Jesus, he loves us and is rejected for us. And now he is that firm cornerstone, that stone of offense to those who don't believe, but that strong stone of deliverance upon which he is building his house, his people, his temple that can never be shaken. I don't know about you, but for me to know that my faith does not depend on my relative strength, but depends on the sure, concrete, solid rock of Jesus Christ is the best news that I could ever hear because I know how often I push Jesus away and I know how much he loves me because he was willing to lay down his life and die for me who rejected him. What good news this is, brothers and sisters. The stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. All praise and glory and honor be to Jesus. Rest in him. Trust in him. Don't push Christ away. Fall upon him and cling to him. The one who is rejected for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.